welcome to the Back on Track Fitness Podcast, where we answer the tough questions on running, weightlifting, and general fitness. Hosted by Dr. Cameron Dennis and Dr. Eric May, physical therapists. Be sure to check us out at backontracktherapy.com for training programs and other resources. Now, let's get to the show. You really seem to know your stuff based on a lot of the posts that you do and just a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to. But uh, I guess let's start off with having you just tell tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what it is exactly that you do. All right. I'm a physical therapist in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, been fortunate enough to have spent a lot of time working in strength and conditioning prior to becoming a physical therapist. And now I'm in a spot where um, I get to work with a lot of, of high-level athletes, people wanting to get back to doing barbell-based movements, uh, working on CrossFit, Olympic lifters, power lifters, et cetera. And then I get to, um, through my website, thebarbellphysio.com, and through the different seminars that I teach, talk to a lot of different physical therapists and other medical providers about the specific needs of this population and how do we go about better treating fitness athletes um, to improve their health, to improve their performance, to get them back to doing the activities that they want to be doing. How often do you see uh, clients with tendonitis or tendinopathy? All day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty common. Yeah, absolutely. In this population, I think it really is. Probably most commonly is going to be rotator cuff tendinopathy um, and patellar tendinopathy, patellar quadriceps tendinopathy. Um, occasionally in, in the running population that I do see, I'll see more Achilles tendinopathy. How does patellar tendinopathy um, differ from Achilles tendinopathy, differ from gluteal tendinopathy? You know, so it's a tendon, right? But I know that's a big question, but just briefly, how does, you know, how does your loading strategy change dependent on where, which tendon we're talking about, or does it change? Uh, for me personally, it doesn't change too much. I know there are people, you know, there's some research out showing that isometrics work better in certain tendons than other tendons, et cetera. Um, you know, I'm not even going to lie to you and say that I'm the most in-depth knowledgeable on the latest research stuff in tendinopathy. For me, it's... I always go on a case-by-case -case basis, especially when it comes to something like isometrics. So there's, there's um, some research out there showing that if we do long sustained isometrics on people that have tendinopathy, we can get an analgesic effect. Right. And there's, again, there's been some research that shows that that happens in some tendons and not others. For me, I mean, I've had a lot of times where even if I use it uh, on a joint that, that has research to support it or a tendon support it being effective, there are a lot of patients that it's not effective for. Sure. So a lot of times what I'll do when it comes to something like that, um, no matter what, which tendon it is, I'm going to have them do some isometrics and just before and after without giving them any cues or clues as to what I'm doing, just ask them to do a, a movement that previously caused pain. Did isometrics help with that pain? If so, yeah, that's going to be part of their treatment plan. If it didn't, that's less likely to be something that they do. Um, I, I know from some research, the, the patellar tendon tends to, um, just be a little bit of a harder one to get. You have to be a, a bit more of an explosive athlete to get than some of the other ones. Mm -hmm. um, I, I tend to, in my population, see uh, Achilles tendinopathy um, in a wider range of people than I do patellar tendinopathy. So I'll see somebody that, that's not physically active at all or is just starting to be physically active come in with that. Or I'll see somebody that, that's, you know, super elite runner coming in with a tendinopathy in the Achilles. As far as the patellar, I typically see that in somebody that's, that's a little bit more advanced. Sure. And what, what would you say is actually going on when somebody comes in with tendinopathy? You know, what is, what is the most common sort of cause, I guess, would you say? 
for me, the, the first thing I'm going to do anytime somebody comes in and I think that there's a, a tendinopathy going on is we're going to have a long discussion on their training volume and just general recovery. I, I typically just explain it to patients as something as simple as, you know, if you did a really hard workout, what would happen? Your muscles would be sore. If we did, you know, chronically overloaded a muscle, what would happen? You would get sore and sore and sore. Well, that's what's happened to your tendon, except the tendon has now gotten into a space where it's not even recovering from these uh, successive workouts. So let's look back at your training and see what happened here. Did you start working on, um, you know, in a CrossFitter, for example, did you start working on a, a new program to improve your squat one rep max? And so you went from you know, squatting heavyweights one day a week to doing three days a week of heavy squatting on something like a small off cycle. Well, that gives me a, a, a really good um, clue as to what's going on here. They just simply really overloaded that tendon by adding in a lot of volume, something that their body wasn't prepared for. Or if it's a high school basketball player coming in with the tower tendon, well, what was your off-season training like? I was playing basketball two or three days a week, and now he's going and doing two a days, five days a week. All right, we had a huge spike in your training volume, a huge spike in the amount of volume that that specific tendon's getting, and it just got to the point where it said, hey, forget you, we can't keep up with, with what you're putting us through, and, right. and we're going to start to get pissed off at you. Right. Do you see a difference in those who sort of chronically develop it versus someone who, who develops um, sort of an irritation from, you know, just maybe one bout of activity that overloaded the tendon? Do you see a difference in outcomes? Um, I think the person that, that comes into me and they've had, you know, they went and did one really hard workout. They hadn't done anything abnormal. And then they go and do something like, a, like a, a big thing here in Charlotte is there's this race that goes on every year where uh, there's this 24 hours of running in wow. a group. Mm -hmm. And so people will crank out five miles, rest for a few hours, crank out another five miles. And so none of those specific runs are too much. Um, but it's the fact that they do so many in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. They feel like cardiovascular, they're recovered, but that tendon hasn't recovered. They're also sleeping like crap during that 24 hours. Um, so there's some other factors going on there. But somebody that, that has that, I typically see that it's going to be a little bit easier to, to manage. You know, we get them doing some light loading, get some uh, movement happening in that tendon, educate them on, you know, cutting back their volume down a little bit, but let's keep moving as much as we can. That tends to be a little bit easier than somebody that comes to me and they've been for six months dealing with this nagging little injury that they keep running through and working through and it, it bothers them, but not so much that it's killer. That for me typically is one that I'm just going to, Hey, this is going to be a little bit of a longer process. We're just going to work through some continual uh, strengthening of the tendon and, and progress to more dynamic movements long-term. Those are typically harder for me. Okay. Yeah. I would, I would tend to agree. The, the thing that I saw, I see a lot is, especially with uh, when you get a lot of people asking for advice online, you'll see uh, a lot of the different running groups and things like that. Cause that's kind of my, my focus, but uh, they'll say, you know what, you know, I, I feel like I have Achilles tendonitis or something, you know, patellar tendonitis and they'll say, you know, what should I do? And then everyone will say, Oh, rest, 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 or, you know, roll it out, use your foam roller, go get it dry needled, you know, or, just run through it, you know? So I guess what, what would happen? I get, and it's hard to say, and this is a case by case basis, but say someone has a, a chronically degenerative tendon, we'll say the Achilles tendon. Um, and then they simply rest, they take off three weeks. We'll say three weeks, three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they try to return to running, you know, are they, 
what are the chances that they'll be fully recovered from that? Or do they, you know, what would their sort of return to running look like? All right. Let's say you have, you work at a store and there are five employees, three of the five are working, two of them don't do anything around there. So what starts to happen, the three of the five that are working their butts off to cover for the other two start to get really mad. And so the manager that's over these five employees sees this situation getting bad. What does he do? He gives them the weekend off so that they can all calm down and not be so hot and ticked off at each other. They come back in on Monday. Everybody's in a better mood after the weekend and not seeing each other for a few days. They feel good. As soon as they start working and get later into the day and those two employees are still being lazy and not doing their part, what happens? Everybody gets mad again. Oh, and man. That's a simple uh, analogy that I use to get patients to understand this, that, that we have to get to the root cause. The root cause is, is that we don't have enough people working right now. We don't have enough strength in this tendon to tolerate the amount of workload that's going on in the business. And so I love that analogy. Take time to rest. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get people not mad, but that's not gonna last very long. Right, right. So, so what would you suggest in that situation for this person? You know, what would you suggest that they do? Uh, obviously, that's going to be individualized, but we we got to have a long talk about how much volume can they tolerate without making things worse. I'm okay with them doing the activities that they want to do that, that's slightly increasing their pain. But if it's to the point that they're not able to recover from that, if, if you're going out and running and now you're limping for two days afterwards, we got to figure out what's the amount of running we can tolerate that, that maybe you're uncomfortable for the rest of the day, but we're kind of back down to our baseline the next morning. Um, that's step number one. And I'm really going to work to try to meet them in the middle and, and try to figure out what's the most of what they want to do. Um, that I can allow them to do. Mm -hmm. I think when we completely cut somebody off, they're not going to listen to us and they're just going to keep ramming their head into the wall. Uh, whether it's running or CrossFit or weightlifting, that's their, not only their way to improve themselves physically, but for most of these athletes, if they're a part of a run group or they go to a CrossFit gym, that hour is how they unwind at the end of the day. That's where they see their best friends, their favorite people in the world. That's where they get kind of their social positioning and social relationships. We don't need to cut that out. Um, we're going to really mess with some people psychologically. If we complete that, if we completely cut that out, we're also going to mess with their physiological symptoms if we completely cut that out. Um, right. So we want to figure out what's, what's the um, most volume we can do without making things worse, and then what do we need to do to build that up? And so typically that's going to be you know, starting with some slow tempo movements where we're loading up that tendon. Um, and there's a lot of different thought processes on how hard we load that up. There's going to be some people that will use something like the Cybernetical pain monitoring model where they have a you use a zero to ten scale to talk about how intensely you should load that tendon um, With some patients I will use that if they're kind of a little type a and I need to give them some serious guidelines And hey, you're not allowed to do something that creates, you know, five out of ten pain or greater I might do that uh, For other people you can be a little bit more broad and just say I want you to load this for you know three sets of eight to twelve I want you to feel a little bit of discomfort in that tendon but whatever you think is an acceptable amount of discomfort, I'm cool with. So that's just on a case-by-case -case basis as I read people, and certainly I get that wrong sometimes. Um, but after you get it wrong enough, you typically learn to identify just in your subjective exam what type of person this is gonna be and, and how they're gonna best respond to, to your directions as far as how to load. Sure. Yeah, because I guess some of, this, some of the uh, information I've received, I guess, from Chris Johnson and uh, Quint Hennick, are you familiar with Quinn Hennick? Um, Great guys. Yeah, they have some really good information out there about this. And they were talking about whether or not 
the sensation of pain is even a really good indicator of, you know, how much you're able to load it, you know, how much you should you be loading it, you know, so you might have someone who can tolerate a great deal, you know, and, and it's actually going to be doing more for the tendon, you know, than someone who's maybe only able to tolerate like, you know, a very lightweight, you know, so. Um, yeah, we're just scratching the surface on that. Right. You know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't, don't quite understand is that the research is coming along, but there's so much that we don't know yet. Oh yeah. And I think, I think anybody can, can pretend to be an expert in, in anything, but you know, I think we're all just learning how tendonitis and tendinopathy and not just that, but you know, musculoskeletal injuries and, and um, really anything along that, that line, the learning how that works. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess one thing that I've done, and you can tell me whether or not you agree with this, is to kind of gauge their tolerance to it the next day. So say like 24 hours later, are they still in that, that high level of pain, you know, seven. So say they're, you're doing slow, heavy squats for patellar tendinopathy and, you know, it brings them to a seven out of 10 pain, for example, is that level of pain seven out of 10 at 24 hours later? If it is, is that too much? You know, uh, I would suggest that maybe if it hasn't returned to somewhere close to baseline, then maybe it was too much. But what would you suggest? What would you think? I typically will. Um, 24 hours is my average. There are some people that will say, hey, 12 hours, I want you back to baseline. But I even had somebody yesterday coming in with a high hamstring tendinopathy. And, you know, she didn't like that she was, you know, she's pain-free with ADLs. When she does certain workouts, she gets aggravated. She's on board now with needing to load this tendon up and strengthen it, but she doesn't like being at a four out of 10 all day after doing some hamstring work. Right. But she's one that I even went as far as saying, all right, we're going to find some different ways to load the hamstring up hard with slow tempo, but we're going to get, we're going to get the pain level down even more because I just think for her psychologically doing something where she feels the muscle work really hard, but isn't aggravated for the rest of the day, even though she was on board and understood the 24 hour process, just in my third follow up with her, I just got a feeling like if I just keep hammering her and keeping her constantly at this three to four with loading this up every other day or every third day, uh, that, that it just psychologically was going to have her constantly thinking about this pain. Sure. And so I her and said, all right, we're going to deload this a little bit. We're not going to be as aggressive on her hamstring. Um, sure, that makes sense. There are yeah. certainly others that, that I'll let them load hard and heavy. They feel like it's acceptable and they want to get it up to a six out of 10. But I do in general want to see it back down to 24 hours, Sometimes I'll tell people 12 hours if I just feel like there's somebody that um, would be better if I kept them a little bit lower. Sure, sure. So I guess it just changes on a uh, case-by-case basis. Yeah. Like anything that we talk about, I guess. But um, you brought up hamstring tendinopathy. I think that's a little bit more um, – it's, it's, it's definitely interesting, at least in the running world, because it seems like every – uh, a lot of times when you have a runner come in uh, with hamstring tendinopathy, they had been misdiagnosed. <laughs> As oh, yeah. What'd you say? Oh yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's uh, their, their physician or PT, even another PT, you know, may maybe saying, Oh, it's the sciatic nerve. Let's just smash the hell out of the piriformis here. You know, let's, let's stretch the hell out of that or whatever. You know, and it's like, well, did you even do a real assessment? <laughs> you know? 
I see it as one of three things. So when somebody comes in with a hamstring tendinopathy, um, quite often I see that the, the neural tension has been missed, or quite often I find that it's an adductor problem, not a hamstring problem. And nobody's taken the time to break out the difference between those two, um, which I think is important, or between those three, rather. I tend to see it less as somebody coming to me with a diagnosis of sciatica and it being a high hamstring and more of somebody comes in and they had a high hamstring injury, but then I test their hamstring strength and they're pretty daggum strong with very minimal pain. I put them in a straight leg raise or slump and all of a sudden they're lit up like a Christmas tree. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So that's where getting a full assessment is important (laughs) as opposed to potentially treating it on your own. But you know what, I see that you have a um, you have a great resource on your website. It's called is a uh, blog that you had written. It's called the uh, Lifter's Guide to Treating Tendinopathy. Yeah, um, um, it's, it's really go ahead. Yes, I put that out. I can't I can't actually remember if I wrote that or somebody wrote it as a guest article for me. So I'm just going to put that out there so nobody calls me out later on that. Oh, gotcha. Um, I really can't. <laughs> But basically, I, I put it out, or it was either myself or a former PT student put it on my website. Um, I was just answering too many emails about, hey, I have this tendonitis, this tendinopathy. What do I do? And, and I just don't like answering those messages because it's so complicated. So I just said, hey, lifter's guide to tendinopathy. Go check it out on my website. And kind of gives people a, a step-by-step uh, program for, for how to get back to doing what they want to do um, rather than me having to individually answer that 10 times a day. Right, right. Have you seen success with people self-treating tendinopathy? I think um, I think a lot more people that have tendinopathy should self-treat than come to PT. Because mm. I think then they come to PT and they're going to find a lot of other things that are wrong with them according to our diagnoses and that it's that your you know, transverse abdominis doesn't fire and your piriformis and psoas are tight and your upper <laughs> traps are overactive. So yeah, I wish more people would just... Um, self-treat. But, you know, it's, it's hard to get the message. There's a lot of complicated things around this from, from the discussions on training volume and sleep and nutrition and things like that that can make the body more or less sensitive to pain, better or, or less better, less able to recover from workouts. So we have to have some talks around that. We also have some talks around, you know, how to load it appropriately. So I think it is hard for a lot of people that don't have a uh, uh, a certain level of knowledge base or a certain amount of um, thoughts behind how to get things better. Um, right. But I think it's one of those things that God, too often I, I see somebody, I'm like, yeah, you just need to go, you know, do some slow isotonics for a month and maybe I'll see you in like four to six weeks when you feel like you're ready to progress to something more aggressive plyometrically. Um, I, I don't think that they need the, they definitely don't need three times a week for two weeks and they don't need to, come in very frequently. It's about getting them to buy into taking care of this themselves and seeing them, I think, as little as we have to. That's, mm. that's my general philosophy with it. Have you seen that you have uh, clients who find it difficult to maybe be patient or understand the, the, the uh, sort of time frame that we're looking at for a tendinopathy? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely hard. Um, you'll have a lot of people that, that maybe come back after two or three weeks of starting something and they're like, it's no better. Right. So I think if we go back to the initial examination, for me, it's really important to figure out um, some key baseline measurements. And I try to find some, some low-hanging fruit. So if somebody comes to me with um, you know, lateral elbow tendinopathy, all right, so when you wake up in the morning, you pick up your coffee cup, how much pain do you have? I have a, you know, a 
two out of 10. Like it's not pain, it bothers me a little bit. But when I go and try to do a pull up, you know, that's a six out of 10. And I just get some metrics there. I'm like, all right, Johnny, here's what's gonna happen in the next two or three weeks. You're not gonna feel like your pull ups are pain free. I just go ahead and tell them right away. It's gonna take a little bit longer for that tendon, you know, after six months of it being overloaded, it's gonna take longer to build that up. But what I expect to see in two or three weeks is that that coffee cup doesn't hurt anymore, that you don't feel anything in the morning when you pick that up. And if I can find some low hanging fruit like that, it's like, a, this is what we're looking for two to three weeks from now. And, and hold yourself and hold myself accountable for making sure that happens, that tends to set a better stage for that. And then I can just say, look, I don't need to see you a ton, but, but this is going to be a 10 or 12 week process or you know, whatever I think it is clinically, just so that from the start, I've kind of set some expectations and I've um, given them some things to think about, to really pay attention to, to ensure that they are actually progressing or, or if they're not actually progressing. Sure. So with, with self-treatment of tendinopathies or even through physical therapy or chiropractic, do you see that there is room for foam rolling, room for dry needling, cupping, any of those sorts of things? Do you find them effective? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, the placebo effect is, is definitely huge. So you know what, if somebody believes that, that cupping or some dry needling may help them out a little bit or they feel like they're tight, I probably don't want them, especially if it's like an insertional Achilles tendinopathy. We're not stretching it a whole lot, so if they feel like it's tight, then I have no problem telling them, look, when it feels tight, you jump on the foam roller. I'm not telling them that we're breaking up tissues or anything like that, but if it's things like that are gonna make them feel a little bit better temporarily, then who am I to take away something that's gonna create some temporary analgesic effect from somebody? Right. Of course, Twitter's gonna say I'm a bad person for saying that, but. Well, I would, I would tend to agree with you, but. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with being truthful based on what you've seen in the clinic and what you, the research is saying. You get a little bit more heat than I do about some of the things, but um, I definitely try to be a little, uh, I don't judge the clinicians who do it necessarily openly, um, but I want to at least educate the patients, educate the, the runners in my groups and things like that. And, you know, what, what is actually going on there, but it's definitely an interesting conversation and, and something that we certainly um, should get into on another podcast, but it would probably take us about an hour to go through maybe more. <laughs> Those are fun conversations to have with patients though, because you have to be, uh, you have to be a little artful in how you put it to them. Right. Because they come in with these beliefs and, and I think too many people get gung ho on modern research and pain science and what manual therapy does and doesn't do. And they just want to go into the clinic, like swinging their evidence-based manual all over the place. And, and it just, their message doesn't resonate with patients. Mm -hmm. and they learn to back down and have better communication there, get buy-in about loading. I don't think you, know, you or I are no illusions that that, that that stuff doesn't hold a light to loading as far as changing the biomechanics, but um, you just can't go in guns blazing, destroying people's long-held belief. You're, you're going to burn some bridges. Right. Um, right. So, so do that stuff, but do it with some appropriate language. I'm like, hey, this is just going to buy us you know, a little temporary relief. If anything, it's the loading that's going to create these long-term changes. But Right. It makes it feel better for a couple of days. I'm all daggum for it. Right. And that's kind of that's kind of something that we've we've had to deal with in our area. It's um and nothing against chiropractors, but it is highly um sort of focused on chiropractic in our area. There's about six thousand people in our town and there are 
seven chiropractors <laughs> just really there's just a couple pts so uh you know people are very much in the mindset of you know i'm i'm in pain so i must go see a chiropractor mm-hmm. you know and that's basically what they've done um for generations really you know and some of them they don't even go to see their family doctor they just go to see the chiropractor so um you know while i may not necessarily agree with everything that they do i think there's certainly a place for that um, and I think that, you know, we've, we've definitely had to, um, learn a little bit about how to not put down these other professions that, you know, if, if, if they weren't doing anything helpful for these people in the previous years and generations, you know, and, uh, they, they wouldn't years, still be there. Right. <laughs> years and generations of trust there. Exactly. You're not in an initial evaluation going to go in and completely change their belief around the things that that person's done. Right. And I think trying to do that is, is trying to bang your head against the wall there. Right. It's just going to lead to people flooding out of your clinic. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, anytime like, you bash somebody too, it doesn't, it doesn't help you in the mindset of who you're talking to. It hurts you. Right. Yeah, and that's definitely something I've had to change quite a bit from when I first started. Um, oh, yeah. Me too. But, but, you know, I guess you, you, you get older and you grow and you learn, right? Mm-hmm. To, uh, I mean, there's even there's lots of different things, even in the gym that we're in, um, that, you know, maybe I just don't understand at this point, you know, but I, I definitely don't want to disrespect, you know, some of the things that uh, – it's, it's the gym owner. She, she does a lot of like energy work and things like that. And, you know, whether or not I believe in what's going on, you know, what the way that she says it, you know, people do leave feeling better emotionally, psychologically. So why would I go and disrespect what she's saying? You know, I wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense. You know, we have sort of a good partnership. She refers people to us and we refer people to her for certain things. And, it's just sort of a nice back and forth and especially in a small town, I think that's super important, but uh, we're definitely getting off topic here, but that's okay. <laughs> How do we, I guess it's hard to, you can't a hundred percent prevent any sort of injury. We know that, right? Right. But what sort of things can we do as athletes to reduce our chances of coming down with something like this? I think in general, when it comes to any injury, um, people that have higher chronic workloads, tend to tolerate changes in their volume a little bit better. People that are stronger tolerate changes in training volume better. People that are more aerobically fit tolerate changes in their training volume more. So I think just overall, the, the, the higher your work capacity is, both as a whole entire body and at specific muscles, joints, et cetera, the, the more resilient you're going to be against injury. And when I treat... Um, when I treat, a, I, I treat one guy that's won multiple national championships in Olympic weightlifting, when he comes in with patellar tendinopathy, that is really easy. Like, this is something like, hey, if we just start doing some specific loading on it, he's going to be fine in two or three weeks because he has years and years and years of time spent uh, under heavy loads for, for a long time under tensions, et cetera. So he has this giant workload that he's built up that his body just – tolerates things. Now he's going to tweak something every now and then, but it's not going to really hold him back much um, versus somebody else that has a really uh, poor overall status. You know, if, if a relatively sedentary person comes in dealing with the tendinopathy, that's a tendon that has been chronically underloaded and doesn't have a whole lot of 
resilience in it, it's going to be a little bit slower. So be more fit. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so Sleep do you have well, any? Well. Would you say? Sleep well, eat well. Right. Do you have any other thoughts about tendinopathy? Anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? Um, anything super important? You know, I think um, after it comes to heavy, slow loading, it's just, uh, to me, that's going to start getting the ball rolling. And then we have to sit back and look at what is this person trying to get back to doing? Is this a runner who wants to run 50 miles a week and right now they're at 25? All right, that's game plan what we need to do to build you back up to that volume. Uh, if it's a, a basketball player, we start with some heavy, slow stuff, but we got to progress that to something more dynamic. And so maybe they don't, um, and a lot of times I see them that the heavy, slow stuff's going really well. I try to progress them to more aggressive jumping and they don't tolerate that at all. And so it's how do I bridge the gap between those two? And I might use something like a push press to more dynamically load the tendon than, than a, a slow squat, but it's not quite as much in the tendon as jumping is. And, and try to always look at where they're at, where do we need to go, how do we progressively take them to where they need to go. Sure. Crossfitters coming to me with, with rotator cuff tendinopathy, and, and we're, we're back to doing you know, strict presses and overhead squats pain-free, and snatches still bother them, and being on the kipping – uh, doing kipping pull-ups still bothers them. What do I need to do to more dynamically challenge that shoulder to get it prepared for those types of loads? So it's just an overall analysis of, of you know, what our plan needs to be long-term. So there, there you have a clinic, actually. I'm in a standalone private facility. Uh, oh, okay. All my videos are shot in my garage gym, actually. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha, okay. In the clinic where you have a bunch of patients running around and you know, they don't want to hear barbells slamming down the ground, et cetera. Uh, but for the most part, I'm in the clinic. Gotcha. Okay. So if anybody in the Charlotte area um, wants to reach out to you, how can they? How uh, there's can plenty they... of ways to contact me. If you just go to my website, thebarbellphysio.com. Okay. And then uh, can you tell us, I guess, maybe about some of the resources that you have on there for people who aren't necessarily in, in that area? Yeah. Um, so all of my work on my website focuses on reaching fitness athletes, crossfitters, powerlifters, and Olympic weightlifters. So if you're somebody that, that, if you're a clinician or a coach wanting to better understand the needs of those athletes, I have some educational videos, such as my, my video, like Master the Squat, where I take an hour and a half long video and I, I go through every assessment I use to look at the squat, um, the, the differences in different squat variations, different treatment techniques I use. Uh, so if you're a coach or clinician, videos like that are helpful. If you're an athlete, I have a lot of kind of like done for you programs. So if you're trying to work on your squat mobility, we have a squat mobility program. Now it's certainly not as good of a program as if you, you know, were to come see me and let me individualize what we're doing, but that's, that's expensive and, and that's not scalable for, for people. Like I, I only have a certain number of hours in a week. So we have some, you know, uh, cheaper programs such as that one that could allow people to get access to things like that um, a lot easier. Thank you for tuning in to the Back on Track Fitness Podcast. We hope you found it helpful. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And check out running and weightlifting programs for athletes of all experience levels at backontracktherapy.com. Links are in the show notes. See you next time.